Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but uh, two things really fast before we get there. Um, so if you look behind you, that's Holden, the run of the tech right there. Okay, Holden. And there's Dan. Dan runs the tech. Here, what do they have in common? They are both about to become dads, like any second now. How many of you enjoy being able to hear my voice through the speakers? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, well, thank you. Yes, I love you too. We will, we will take note. How many of you, I, I'm now I'm afraid to expose our people. How many of you like here, you know, so um, we need some people on the tech team, hardcore. We need some people on the tech team, hardcore. So some of you have maybe expressed a little bit of interest before, and we're going to double down on getting everybody trained and ready to go before these babies pop out, which could happen at any second, really. So um, please, please, please talk to Holden. We, even if you can do like one week a month, that would be amazing, not only to get us through uh, that little season, but also to keep you on board and continue to share the love. So if you are at all techie and compl- in- inclined, those are your people. So talk to Holden after. Please, 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 fam, can we do that? Can we do that, please? Okay. Um, the second thing I wanted to tell you that Steph implied, please mark your calendar for Sunday, March 1st. Uh, Sunday, March 1st, Pastor Guillermo and Pastora Adria, who I worked with and got to live with in Cuba for 11 days, will be here in worship. Pastor and Pastora will be preaching that Sunday. Uh, I think we'll do a lunch after. Um, and the fire is going to... Because they're just legit. And so they'll be staying with us. Um, I will probably send you an email about that. Um, but here's an, a fun cultural thing to note. It's a high honor culture. I don't care what you call me. I don't think anybody here calls me pastor, and when you do, it makes me feel like I've gotten in trouble. Um, it will be very important that you address Guillermo as pastor and Adria as pastora, because it's a high honor culture in Cuba, and, and we'll talk about some other stuff, but I'm really excited to have them come and uh, be sharing with you some other ways. We're, really kind of came back, and having let the missions trip high kind of burn off, would really like to see what we can do long-term with a partnership in Cuba. Uh, we, as a church, uh, do a lot of great things locally. We could be doing a lot more. We do a lot of great things nationally. We could be doing a lot more. We do a couple of things globally. We could be doing a lot more. And so we want to maybe use this as a way to press in. So stay tuned in your email. I'll probably be reaching out to you this week um, to let you know a little bit more about that. But that'll be Sunday, March 1st. March 7th is the um, couples conference, which I'm super excited to have Chael and Jen here for. Um, and just to name this really quickly, um, you know, I was raised in, I was going to say this later, but I think it's better to say it now. I was raised in kind of an evangelical tradition that had a high view of scripture and not the highest view of the Holy Spirit. And since about January of 2017, uh, our church has been the background kind of quiet process of trying to figure out what is our theology of the Holy Spirit. And as God continues to do more, not only in our public space, but in kind of scattered spaces where the Holy Spirit is kind of showing up in some ways, we just want to be attentive and intentional with that. Um, And so my original plan had been after Easter to preach the book of Daniel, but starting after Easter, I'm going to begin preaching through the book of Acts. And we'll start when it starts and we're going to end when it ends. And um, um, if you have questions as we continue to press into this, please ask me. I know that I can be pretty high challenge from the front, but I'm a teddy bear one-on-one, especially if you give me a cup of coffee. And, um, 
and uh, we can kind of process that. But um, I mean, we have people in our community that are having very specific, very clear dreams through which God is speaking. We're having people having very clear, like words from the Lord for other people. I mean, like stuff is just happening. And so we want to be intentional about being obedient to the Lord, not trying to control what God is doing, but also trying to have an understanding of really what scripture is saying. And as a church, we've always kind of let God lead through scripture first. Um, I'm a teacher, so the only way I kind of always know how to handle this stuff is to teach our way through it. So that's what we're going to do. So we'll be, if you've been in a circle, uh, you've been using passages from the book of Acts this year. So some of you will have some more familiarity with that uh, and be able to press in. So we're excited about that. But we have some work to finish off in 2 Samuel. So let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me get my phone holding so I can do that thing. At Regen, we like to binge watch entire books of the Bible at, at a time, binge watch entire books of the Bible at a time, and so that's what we're going to do with Second Samuel uh, this morning, and what we're doing until Easter. Second Samuel. I went to Bible college. I know where things are. Hang on. Okay. Since the crown first touched David's head in Hebron, his life was a whirlwind of war and intrigue, ship and conflict, international politics and spiritual renewal. Reading early chapters of 2 Samuel, it's like, uh, in the words of Eugene Peterson, it's like a breath succession. It is like a whitewater rafting tour. Uh, the action between, the, and the action to be clear, it's not been pointless or fruitless. David now sits enthroned in Jerusalem, having successfully made Jerusalem his political capital and the spiritual capital for God's people. He has subdued the Philistines. He has routed the Jebusites. And as we turn into 2 Samuel 7, we, it's like we come around the bend and we find some still waters the narrative slows down. The language becomes more formal. And from a certain point of view, it would seem like the action stopped. But only from a certain point of view. The action doesn't stop. The action goes inward. The action goes inward as David prays. And as John Wesley says, prayer is where the action is. In 2 Samuel 7, David is riding the wave of his meteoric rise to power and influence. And now from that says, I'm going to do something significant for God. But in the words of the theologian Michael Scott, my, 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 turntables. God flips it around. God flips it around. Am I breaking in and out or is that just me? Should I transition microphones? Okay, that's cool. Here we go. It's good to be fancy every once in a while. The Lord is going to take the lead. So, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king had lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. Second Samuel opens and we find David in his house. We find him in his palace of cedar. 
And then we come upon the key phrase. If you're using your own Bible, feel free to underline that. The Lord had given him rest. The Lord puts David at rest. David didn't achieve rest. It was given to him. David is the object and God is the subject. And that nerdy comment on grammar, by the way, we're going to talk a lot about grammar today. That nerdy comment on grammar sets the stage for this entire passage. The Hebrew writers did not use drawn illustrations to make their points. So they use verb tenses and clauses and objects and indirect objects to make their point artistically. It's good to read the Bible literally. It's also good to read the Bible literarily. See, what we're going to find in this passage is that God resists being the object. He insists on being the subject. So David is put at rest by the Lord. There are further battles on the horizon, yes, but in this one moment he can breathe and give attention to the weightier matters of his rule. And so David looks at his palace, his palace of cedar, and he feels some incongruence, and he goes to the prophet Nathan and says, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. In the ancient Near East, at the time of Samuel and the time of David, cedar is an unusually valuable commodity. If Chip and Joanna Gaines were building houses in the ancient Near East, they would not use shiplap, they would use cedar. And people on House Hunters walking in would not only look for a big kitchen that they can entertain in, as in never entertain in it, um, but also they would say, I'm hoping for cedar. And so here's David in his house of cedar, and he feels some incongruence when he looks at his house of wealth and he sees that the ark of God, God's dwelling place, the tabernacle of David, is a tent. And so he looks to the prophet Nathan. Nathan will be a, a big figure in the next chapters. David looks to the prophet Nathan, and even though it's stated as a statement, it's a question. He says, I want to build a house. I want to build a temple for the Lord to dwell in. Is the Lord good with that? He asks Nathan because Nathan is the one designated to speak for God. And Nathan gives him the thumbs up. He gives him the building permit, which then in verse 4 is immediately revoked. Is immediately revoked. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. It says, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Sometimes we feel like we're moving in a positive direction with the Lord in the daytime, and then we pray at night, and the Lord's like, Hey, up. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I was brought, since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. And until this point, I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people and say, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Now therefore, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. This is verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
And from that time that I appointed the judges over my people of Israel, and, and I will give you rest. Second time that word comes up, it'll come up a third. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is the my, 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 how the turntables, okay? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come and who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be with I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with these words, in accordance with the vision, Nathan spoke to David. In verses 4 through 17, the Lord goes to Nathan, and then Nathan goes to David. This is the prophet's job. And in this long discourse from the Lord, and did you notice how the Lord insists on being the subject of the sentences, I will I brought up, I will make. It's about him. He could, this whole paragraph can be summarized as this. You think you want to build me a house? No, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. And there's an interplay. There's an interplay on the word house, which in English means two things, right? It means a, a brick and mortar building, a dwelling, or it means the house of Stark, right? The lineage of a person, a dynasty, right? And so what David has in mind is brick and mortar dwelling. What the Lord has in mind is offspring and descendants. Uh, what David has in mind is the kingdom of this earth, and what, what, what the Lord has in mind is the kingdom that is yet to come. Eugene Peterson uh, translates this paragraph. He says, you want to build me a house? Forget it. I'm building you a house. The kingdom that I'm shaping here is not what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here, not you. I'm not going to let you confuse things by launching a building operation of your own. If I let you fill Jerusalem with the sights and sounds of your building project, carpenter's hammers and mason's chisels and teamster's shouts, before long, everyone will be caught up in what you're doing and not attentive to what I'm doing. This is a kingdom that we're dealing with, and I am the king. I've gotten along without a so-called house for a long time now. Where did you ever come up with the idea that I need or want a house? Christians are very good at this. God, here's this thing that I want to do, and so we're going to do it, and if you would bless it, that would really help us out. We're going to have a meeting about this thing that we need to do, and we're going to pray for 30 seconds at the beginning and 30 seconds at the end. That counts, right? Where did you ever get the idea, the Lord says, that I needed or wanted a house? Is there any building, if there's any building to be done, I'm doing it. I've been working with you, David, since your shepherd days, building a kingdom, a place where salvation and justice and peace can be realized. That's why you're here, listen to this, to give visibility and representation to what I am doing, not to call attention to what you're doing. We have had just one such failure in Saul. We're not going to have another. There will come a time when it's appropriate to build something like you, what you have in mind. In fact, your son will do it. Uh, David's son Solomon constructs the temple. But this is not the time. First, we have to get the concept of my sovereignty established in people's imagination and practice. This is key. Your kingship as a witness to my kingship, not an obscuring of it. And here's the reality. 
David's request is well-intentioned, it's honorable, it's righteous, it reveals inside of David a heart and a loyalty for God that is unprecedented to this point in Scripture, and yet it also reveals that somewhere along the way, David had gotten so busy doing things for God that he stopped being a witness to what God was doing and started obscuring what God was doing. David had lost sight that God is the subject and not the object. And if you jump back to those earlier verses in the chapter, the grammar says it all because David is treating the Lord like an object. Well, here's what I got. I got to go give God this thing. He forgets that he is the object, that David is the object, that God is the subject, that the Lord has caused David to rest. A little thing there, what you call passive verb, my friends. David hasn't achieved rest by his own merits and strength. God has given David rest. God is the subject. He resists being the object. He does not want David's activity, as well-intentioned and as honorable as it is, to obscure what God is doing. For just a minute, let us have a nerd out on the Davidic covenant. I know you're excited. I am too. Look a little closer at chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Moreover, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says that this passage is the dramatic and theological center of the work of Samuel and one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for understanding evangelical faith. In other words, all of Samuel is built to bring us to this point, 2 Samuel 7. The whole narrative is driving right here. And this one point is a defining thing for how you and I, as New Testament people, as followers of Jesus, understand the way that God works in the world. In this passage, the Lord promises to David a house, not a habitation, not a dwelling, a dynasty, a lineage. The Lord will make you a house. Now, what's hard about this is that this passage has short-term in view and long-term in view. It has the immediate future and the far distant future in its view. Because on the one hand, it seems to be talking about Jesus, right? He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. See, what God is promising David in this moment is that David's dynasty and throne is a forever kingdom. Which is why Jesus is identified in the New Testament as a son of David, of the lineage of David. And so we think this passage is about Jesus, but then we get to these next lines that are about like, well, when he commits iniquity, and, and those of us that are kind of wrapping our minds around the theology of the New Testament say, well, Jesus can't commit sin. And this is when it kind of moves from this, the passage in verses like 11 and 12 are kind of the near future, 13 and 14 are the far future, and then that last half of 14 and 15 is, again, the near future, and then the last part is the far future. It keeps going back and forth and back and forth. 
it speaks to not only is what God doing over throughout all history and will accomplish later in the future, it speaks to what God is doing right now. And as New Testament Christians, we have this like uh, hindsight is 2020 thing where we're like, oh, 2 Samuel is all about Jesus. And on the one hand, it is. And on the other hand, it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. The author of Samuel is not writing this and thinking, oh, I'm going to be really sneaky. And I'm going to put a Jesus hint here. And let's see if they catch it. The author of Samuel is writing what God is inspiring him to say. And so he's writing all of these words down, and it just so happens that the Holy Spirit gives a pocket of his words meaning that are beyond that present moment into the future, that we with new covenant eyes can look back and see. This passage, on the one hand, is all about Jesus. And in fact, it absolutely increases the faith of Old Testament authors such that it changes the way that they write. Um, there, there are these passages uh, in Isaiah 11, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 9, Jeremiah 23, Micah 5, those psalms listed there that are totally borrowed from and reflective of the, David, the Davidic covenant, which is expressed here in 2 Samuel 7. It totally changes the way Israel sees what God is doing in their midst and changes what they are hoping for a coming future king. At the same time, at the same time, all it is to them is the all it is to David, all it is to those who are hearing is a promise of their immediate future. But what's so interesting about this passage, like by the way, that was, that's Psalm 89, I've made a covenant with my chosen one, I've sworn to David my servant. Really what 2 Samuel 7 is is a big step forward in how God is revealing the way that he is going to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. 2 Samuel 7 is almost this mountain peak that we can climb to the tippy top of and from the top of that mountain peak look down and from a 20,000 foot view survey all the landscape below and see what God is doing. And when we climb that mountain, we actually come to grips with a handful of other passages in the Old Testament that are all driving to Jesus, that are all driving to Jesus, that are increasing Israel's expectation for an anointed one, a Messiah, a chosen one of God who will bring blessing to the nations and accomplish God's purposes. There are about five or six movements in the Old Testament that are key, and I want to look at them just briefly. The story of the Bible is that in Genesis 1, God creates the world. He creates our first parents, Adam and Eve, who reign and rule as his representatives. And through them, God's plan is blessing will expand over all creation. But when Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, they expand curse over all creation. And so God has to initiate a rescue plan, and the face of that rescue plan is found in a guy named Abram. God renames Abram, Abraham. Abraham is super old, so you know, like 62. Just totally kidding. <laughs> like, triple digits old. And uh, he and his wife have no kids. And God says, I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And through those descendants, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God chooses Abraham to be almost a new Adam, a new vehicle of blessing. And that family of Abraham grows to become the children or the people of Israel, who in the book of Exodus are enslaved in Egypt. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Scripture says, God delivers the Israelites, brings them through the Red Sea, brings them to a mountain called Sinai, and there establishes a covenant with them. He says, you will be my people. I will be your God. He says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if you keep my covenant commandments, 
Through the keeping of that covenant, Israel, you will bring blessing to all the earth. But an interesting thing happens in 2 Samuel. This corporate reality is given yet another face when we begin to expect that the blessing to all creation will come through a future king of the line of David who will rule and reign in righteousness forever, who will bring God's presence to dwell not in a temple made of human hands, but in something more lasting and in something more eternal. And this, this, this begins to change it because originally what we thought is it was going to happen corporately, but now it's happening corporately but focused on this one person who's a king. But then another plot twist comes in Isaiah when Isaiah says that this future king will also be a suffering servant. He will not bring blessing to all the nations uh, by victory, which is what people expected Jesus to do. Uh, Jesus' followers said, is now the time that you're going to establish the kingdom. In other words, is now when you're going to kick Roman butt, set us free and establish your kingdom on earth. Instead, it's actually his death that cancels the power of the curse and brings blessing. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes we are healed. All of this is the story of the Bible that is trying to get us to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he looks at the Old Testament, the First Testament, he looks at the Hebrew Bible and says, they testify about me. It was all about me. And Luke 24, he's walking along the road with some guys, and it says he begins with Moses and all the prophets, including Samuel, and he interprets to them all the scripture of the things concerning himself. Listen, the Bible is one unified story that's pointing to Jesus. And in Jesus, as we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus is the new Adam, who obeys God perfectly, who trusts God perfectly, who participates as the image of God to bring reconciliation of all things. We find that Jesus is the new Abraham, who is building a spiritual family with which to bless all the nations. We find that Jesus is the new Israel. He wanders in the desert for 40 years, just like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He, Jesus obeys God perfectly and keeps the covenant commandments perfectly, which Israel could not do. We find out that Jesus is the better David, who always obeys God, who has a heart for God's presence, who has a hunger to bring the kingdom to earth. We find out that Jesus is the suffering servant. And through his life and his death and his crucifixion and unsurprisingly his resurrection, Jesus is ushering in the blessing through his spiritual family, who, by the way, are also the new temple. The temple that Jesus comes to build is not a piece of brick and mortar. It is a people, a lit aflame by the power of the Holy Spirit that become his story. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because I really like to hear myself talk. This story is your story. You are an inheritor of these promises. You are part of the story that God is writing. And if you know the battles of Concord and Lexington, if you know the Declaration of Independence in 1776, you better know Exodus 19. You better know Isaiah 53. You better know 2 Samuel 7. You better know Genesis 15, because those are real and truer stories about your identity and your history and your future and your hope your future, and your hope. I'm also telling you this to point out that the early church, which we will study when we get to the book of Acts, the early church only has the Hebrew Bible to study. And you know who the early church spent most of their time reading about is David. They spent a lot of time reading David, both in First and Second Samuel and Plot Twist. They tell his story over again in another part of the Bible called First Chronicles, just to make it confusing. They studied David, and here's what you actually find out. If you were to stack up 
all the mentions of every person in the Bible, you would find that Jesus is the most talked about human being in Scripture. But do you know who is the second most talked about human being in Scripture? David. We talk a lot about Jesus, then we talk a lot about David, because David is the closest thing that we ever get to Jesus. David is the closest thing that we ever get to Jesus, and he fails monumentally and disastrously. It's all going to fall apart in like two pages, okay? We're in chapter 7, and it's going to hit the fan in chapter 11, okay? But even in his failures, it creates in us a hunger for the better, the better David, the better David who we meet in the face of Jesus, who we will sing to in the New Jerusalem forever. Forever. So back to 2 Samuel 7. Nerd out done. Remember, there's been three conversations in this text that are driving it forward. The first one, David gets the building permit. The second one, the building permit is revoked. The third one, the third one, uh, something else happens. Let me read to you. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, okay? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And just before I forget to say it, sat before the Lord has the same root word as was given peace. It's the same word, three times in the text. And he said, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is an instruction for mankind. Hi, are you mankind? Yes. This is an instruction for you. This thing that happened however long ago. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. Because of your promise, I love this in verse 20, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all about this, brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great. O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. We give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. According to all that we have heard with our ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, the one nation on earth. There will be no American flag in heaven. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, for your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In these final verses, something absolutely and fundamentally changes in David and through David. Because it is no longer about what David can do for God. Instead, it is a rehearsal and a review of everything that God has done and everything that God is. It is not about what, God, what David can do for God. It is a rehearsal of who God is. And the grammar tells us this. 
David has been converted from talking about God as an impersonal object in chapter 7, verse 2, to now addressing God in, in the second person, you, 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 you. And he does this no less than 17 times in the prayer. He uses the personal pronoun for God over 40 times in this section. And in essence, the shift is this. Here's what's happened inside of David. From being full of himself and his plans for God, David has now become fully attentive to God's plans for him. From being full of himself, from being full of his plans for God, David has become fully attentive to God's plans for him. And from the very beginning, we see that God resists being treated as an object and insists, insists on being treated as the subject. And this passage is all about God and God's actions. It's not about what David can do or will do for God. It's about God. It's about his promises, which is why the most important thing that David does, the most important action David takes in this text is no action at all. The text says, Then King David went and sat before the Lord. Then David went in, and sat before the Lord, David's most important action is inaction. David goes before the presence of God. David sits, and as he sits, David is renouncing royal initiative. He's removing himself from the action. David is making a vote of no confidence in his abilities and his contributions to God. And today I am here with one purpose. I'm looking for sitters. I'm looking for sitters. I'm looking for people that are ready to drop the act. I'm ready to look for people that are going to stop playing the subject who are ready to sit in the presence of God. I'm looking for sitters. Because if we're not careful, we become like David. We get so caught up in what we're doing for God, so caught up in the ways that we're trying to care for him and bless him that we forget who's the subject and who's the object. And whether caught up in the heights of success and blessing or way down in the pit of despair... We begin to use God as an object. We begin to use God as the cure to get us out of the pit or the totem of our success. Some football player somewhere said into a TV camera last Sunday night, well, we prayed and God gave us the victory. Do you think the God of the universe gives a rip about who wins the Super Bowl? In the process, the using of God obscures God. The using of God obscures God. And this is why parents who have devoted their life to Jesus have kids that can't stand him. And by the way, pastor's kids are first among that. And every once in a while I think very carefully about that and think I need a new job. This is why a faithful servant of a church has friends who flee their presence because they can't stand the pride and the self-importance. This is why local churches totally lose their connection to God. They get so busy doing stuff for God that they lose out on the presence of God, and they get so busy doing it, they forget who God cares about. Jesus said, I have not come to call the healthy but the sick. They don't need a doctor. I've come to call the sinners, not the righteous. I'm here to call the busy and the distracted and the proud and the puffed up to sit in the presence of God. But hear me, I will wave my hands to make sure you are awake. I am not today writing permission slips for those who would rather do nothing. And the problem is, by the way, if you needed permission to do that, you have stopped listening like 15 minutes ago, so it's totally fine. But this idea of sitting in the presence of God is not God giving you blessing and his permission to do nothing. Not doing anything in rest is very different than nothing doing. 
And we have way too many Christians that have pushed God to the fringes of their life in the names of busyness and distraction and who treat God as the object, not the subject. And now we're thinking, well, pastor said, just sit. I, I get the, this is it. I'm free. No. Instead, I am warning us that being so busy for God and so committed to doing things for him that in the process, we may just obscure him. We may stop being representatives of him and giving witness to him and instead obscure him altogether. Do you want to do great things for God? Do you want to see God move in our church in huge ways? Do you want to see God totally transform your family culture? It has to start with sitting in his presence. It has to start with sitting in his presence. This story is intentionally paired with 2 Samuel 7, excuse me, 2 Samuel 6, where David kind of figures out the presence of the Lord and dances kind of naked in an awkward way in the presence of the Lord. But there's this thing inside of us. See, our sin nature inside of us causes us, when we get close to God consistently, to just begin to want to pull away. And sometimes there's like a spiritual stronghold or a demonic thing that even adds to that. But we start to pull away. And so here's what we do is we distract ourselves by doing things for God. Because then we're still on Team Jesus, but we're not really with Jesus anymore, are we? Just running around doing Jesus-y things. It has to be about guarding against pride. It has to be guarding against self-will. It has to be guarding against poisoning the whole effort, which is why Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Do you notice who the subject is and who the object is? I'm the branch. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the vine. You are the branches. Not the other way around. Verse 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him or her, she it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Later on, Jesus ties all of this to, if you want to do something that is lasting and eternal, then there has to be abiding first. If there's no abiding, we can get a lot of stuff done. We can have a lot of meetings. We can check a lot of boxes. We can have a lot of programs, but there will be nothing that lasts beyond us. There has to be abiding first. There has to be abiding first. There has to be a resistance to treating God as the object, pressing into keeping God as the subject. There has to be abiding. There has to be abiding. So let me tell you what that looks like, kind of three frames. And then Steph will lead us in response time. Whew, okay. Personally, that has to be abiding. There has to be personal abiding. There cannot be fruitfulness and meaning. There cannot be abide. Without abiding, it's all in vain. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but that just means prayer. And you know what the standard is for prayer in the Bible? Pray without ceasing. Well, shoot, I'm really good at praying with ceasing. In fact, I've, I'm good at just ceasing, right? Abiding first. This week, um, we're in this really interesting season in our house. Very upward, a lot of prayer. But there were about six or eight people that I just wanted to lay the smack down on with God's own thunder this week. Um, and then in the name of Jesus. Okay? And so I'm praying. Uh, and a song comes on. I'm listening to some worship music while I'm doing this because I'm very spiritual. And, um, and the song is, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And I had this weird image that came to my mind, and it was like, there's Kyle, surrounded kind of by this donut of light. And the donut's important because it wasn't like a wall of light, it had thickness, okay? 
and I saw myself going and laying the smack down with God's own thunder in the name and love of Jesus on these people. And what I did was push the light aside and step out and handle it myself. And all of a sudden I realized that would not be fruit that lasts. That would not be loving. That would be Kyle seeking to control. And so I, in my mind, stepped back into the, the donut of light. And I have been just praying And every single thing that I prayed about came true this week. Hallmark movie over. (laughs) How much movement have I seen? That much. So I'm going to stop praying is what I decided I'm going to do because that's easier. No. Jesus had taught them to pray and said that they should not give up. There's got to be abiding there's got to be abiding at the level of families. So let me just kind of cue into our, our families as we're kind of trying to set a discipling culture in our families. And there's got to be some family abiding. There has got to be predictable patterns in our homes of up in and out. There's got to be us. We have, we're, listen, Steph and I are raised in homes. And if your parent, my parents are listening, I love you, but it's true. Every once in a blue moon, somebody would be like, all right, we're going to do family devotions together. It'd be the most awkward thing. Like, I have been to more comfortable middle school dances than that, you know? And (laughs) so here's what Steph and I have decided is we're going to work out all the awkwardness now so that when Jack grows up, he doesn't know that anything is different. Okay? There's got to be family abiding, which means, like, parents, like, there's got to be this moment before, like, your kids see you and, like, that you are locked into the presence of God. I'm just finding this because I'm a better parent for the rest of the day if I was locked into the presence of God earlier in the day than not. Jack's super cute, but you don't live with him. You know what I'm saying? Um, There's got to be that. And if you're a grandparent, if your kids are adult children, that doesn't stop. Like the interceding for your kids doesn't stop. Like there's got to be abiding before you kind of have the conversation with your kids. And then there's got to be an abiding as a church. And if we're not abiding first, if we're not seeking Jesus' presence first, if we're so busy doing things for him and not really being with him, we obscure. And that, to me, really connects to, as we begin to see the Holy Spirit do more in our community, all of us have negative feelings toward the Holy Spirit because somebody obscured the presence of God with their own self-will. Right? And so what we want to be very careful about is that we're chasing Jesus, We want to be very careful that we're not just chasing an ideal, that we're chasing Jesus together in our gathered and scattered spaces. And here's the reality. Personally, as a family, in a new marriage, as a church, we are going to fail miserably. We're going to suck at this. Quite frankly, we kind of already do. Um, We're going to fail miserably. But... But Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to prove that that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You are going to have the conversation with your spouse or with your kids in an unkind, unloving way. We're going to screw up as a church. We're going to miscommunicate. We're going to move too fast here and and too slow in another place. Individually, you're going to shoot for praying every day and you're going to get like one out of 14. And when that happens, there is such rich grace. We're talking about a whole life, not a week. We're talking about a whole life. We're talking about a marathon, not a sprint. 
And the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are not the fancy piece in the china cabinet. We are the broken thing in the bottom of the drawer that we just can't bring ourselves to throw away. But we have to sit in the presence. The invitation this morning is to sit in the presence. To sit in the presence. Because prayer is where the action is. Let's pray. Yeah. Jesus, whatever I said, uh, bind it. In heaven, whatever was stupid, get rid of. And uh, Lord, help us to be people that abide.